Greeting, foodie friends. Thank you for listening to Speaking Duck on Never Sleeps Network. I'm your host, Alex Ross. Zane Kaplansky's humble beginnings selling out of the almost hidden away Monarch Tavern says a lot about the man who had the vision to bring smoked meat to the Toronto palate. Now, after multiple radio and television appearances, including his talk show, Let's Eat on News Talk 1010, and appearances on hit shows such as Top Chef Canada and Dragon's Den, Kaplansky caters to Toronto meat lovers with multiple locations and food trucks, including his flagship restaurant at 356 College Street. Zane is funny, generous, and Jewish, and he wears it on his sleeve. There aren't many people who have experienced the vast trials and tribulations of Toronto dining more than our guest today on Speaking Duck, and no better way than to launch the second season than with the Prince of Toronto Smoked Meat himself, Zane Kaplansky. So Thunder and Thelma's no more. Like, did, did what happened to Thelma? So the truck was, uh, let's see. It's kind of complicated. We got inspected by the uh, Technical Safety and Standards Association. That's the quasi-governmental arm that that inspects uh, elevators and all the moving pieces and so on for, for industry. And uh, they had a huge list of uh, repairs that had to get made that we simply couldn't afford to do. And... Um, Consequently, we uh, we decided to uh, buy a new truck instead of going through the repair process. There were a lot of things that were we weren't happy with on that truck. But there actually is litigation pending, and uh, we were really unhappy with the people who sold us the truck. So, so this was your first truck. My first truck, and you know, you always sometimes you, you make mistakes when you're sort of out of the out of the blocks kind of thing. And uh, I learned a lot of things about the kinds of people I do want to work with and the kinds of people I don't want to work with. And I learned about the kind of questions I do want to ask and don't want to ask well i guess there's no question i don't want to ask but you know my eyes are wide open now essentially you're an entrepreneur right and when you first started into the food business you know it's hard to consider yourself anything but a chef or someone who's just putting food on a plate and the business side of things really takes over very quickly oh you know the the business has morphed from uh, our earliest days of a pop-up inside the monarch tavern where you know i had Three thousand dollars to my name, maybe when I first started in two thousand and eight, uh, and we basically started as what's considered Toronto's first pop-up restaurant inside the Monarch Tavern. I didn't even call it a deli. The first name I chose was Kaplansky's at the Monarch because I, I always thought of it as kind of a test case incubator, will this work kind of thing. Plus, I couldn't afford a proper restaurant. And then to scale up from that to College Street, to the food truck, to the airport, and all the other things that have happened in between and and, uh, and around, it's been a real adventure. You're right. I mean, my, my skill set management skill set has grown and been pushed to its limits and then and then grown again. Yeah, you're not just a chef anymore. No, and you know what the truth is? I've never actually called myself a chef. And I get I, that vibe. Yeah, I, I prefer to be called a deli man. And to me, like, that's a tremendous honor. And, and I look at the deli business as being uh, a specific world unto itself. And the, the term chef certainly could apply depending on the definition that you want to use but still to what's in my heart is is deli so you know i'm a deli man and i i know whose shoulders i stand on and and the people who built that business here in toronto and everywhere else i don't know if you ever saw the documentary that i was in called deli man and i was really honored to be included in that because you know a handful of delis were in it but most weren't and to be one of the ones that was chosen uh, was a huge honor. And again, to be to be included in that in that little club. It's interesting because you're the newest wave. If you're going to consider what Delhi is to this city, and a lot of even the neighborhood that your College Street location is was a huge Jewish neighborhood, yes. uh, especially in and around Kensington. So it's very interesting um, to consider Zane's. I mean, it, it's you've you've inputted your mark 
on the Jewish deli culture in Toronto, which I commend you for because anybody to come into any kind of city like Toronto, that's obviously a food city, and to be able to stand the test of time, expand, franchise, you know, yes, you're a deli man, but you have inputted culture into our city that doesn't exist as much as it used to, especially yeah. downtown. Alex, I really appreciate that. And, and I mean, there's a few things. My mind is going in a bunch of different directions. First of all, I didn't do it by myself. You know, th that I've, I put my name on the door and I'm certainly uh, not shy and, and uh, pretty, you know, capable self-promoter, shall we say, modestly, if modesty does, is not my strong suit. <laughs> uh, but, you know, to name names, David Sachs played an enormous role in my growth. David wrote an article for the Globe and Mail that called attention to exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Jewish food comes back downtown. The Saturday in the Globe and Mail before I opened in the Monarch, an article about me and Bagel World that was on Bloor Street, if you'll remember, for a few years. And Jewish food comes back downtown. And that article really drove people down to the Monarch, forced me to run out of meat in the first couple of oh, days. Wow. And David uh, is the author, for, for any of your listeners who don't know, David is the author of Save the Deli, which is a James Beard award-winning book about the deli business. And interestingly, the book was originally to be called Death of the Deli. And David's New York publisher uh, convinced him to change the name to a good news story, essentially because of the work of people like myself, Kenny and Zooks in uh, Portland, uh, Noah Burnhamoff at Myland Deli in Brooklyn, uh, the Wise Sons in San Francisco. There's a bunch of us, as you said, next generation deli guys who have come along and reinvented or rediscovered their roots through this style of food and reintroduced it, not just to Jewish people, but to everybody. And that's part of the case that David makes in Save the Deli, the delis that are successful are the ones that aren't just pitching to the home team, but that were inclusive. Toronto has a gigantic Jewish population, and yet downtown, Delhi Second went to New York, I believe. Uh, right. And and the New York one is massive, too, which is uh, a great Bigger comparison. Than Israel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, why do you think downtown Toronto has such a sparse identity when it comes to Jewish food and delis? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the dreams of our parents and our grandparents, that these are folks who settled mostly in the Kensington Market area. I mean, first there was the Ward, which was the original migration, uh, which actually is not far from where we're, we're sitting here right now in the Never Sleeps Network studios. But uh, then Kensington Market became ground zero. And for me to name a few, it would not do justice to all of the delis and all of the restaurants in the area. But even today, uh, United Dairy, United Bakers, up on Bathurst and Lawrence, started down on Spadina and just celebrated 100 years in business. Wow. My parents still, like, Friday night dinners get stuff from United Bakers. UB soup, is, is uh, you know, it, it's a mecca for us, and, and uh, to use a cross-cultural reference there. <laughs> uh, Jerusalem for our people. But, no, seriously, it's, it's uh, you know, what the what the Ladovsky family has done through the generations is, is, um, is almost miraculous because it doesn't happen. You know, hundred years in business. So essentially to answer your question, when our parents and grandparents were growing up in the Kensington Market area, you know, my father lived on Nassau Street, two blocks south of where my deli is now. Um, they dreamed of yards and suburbia. And so the, the Jewish population moved north up Bathurst Street. To the manor. Uh, to the manor, exactly. And uh, I grew up on the mean streets of North York, which weren't mean at all. We never lo locked our doors. We knew all of our neighbors. It was as idyllic an upbringing. And this is what the Canadian dream was uh, and is maybe for you know the immigrant dream to come here to work hard, to buy a house and to have a yard and to have a front door and to be able to be the master of your domain kind of thing or mistress, depending on your, your persuasions. And, uh, um, but for me, there was always that siren call of heading back downtown. And and it was actually not so emotional as it was financial. Because as I told you a, f a few moments ago, I had $3,000 to my name. Well, you can't start a restaurant on $3,000. But I did. And how did I do it? Well, I found a space that had a kitchen that wasn't being used. And I asked if I could use it. 
and my original deal with uh, the Cristello brothers and James Russo, who uh, owned the place, um, was for $75 a week. So my rent was $300 a month when I first started. Went up from there, but uh, I think I topped out at $800 a month. And I was making really good money back then. And, and um, I'm not going to say how much in case CRA is listening, because I'm not sure what I reported. <laughs> but um, being able to see something other people don't see, being able to have that kind of vision of an opportunity. And in fact, I mean, I had it, but it was Ezra Braves at Ezra's Pound who uh, helped seal the deal. I was managing a restaurant called The Magic Oven on DuPont Street. It's since closed. I was over at Ezra's just down the street. Hey, what are you up to? Ah, you know what? I, I got this smoked meat recipe that, I, that I've developed and I want to open a little sandwich shop. Oh, yeah, what are you going to do? Well, I said to him, you know, it's either going to be a... Um, Hole in the wall takeout restaurant, kind of like San Francisco on uh, on Clinton Street, uh, or like the Black Camel kind of uh, deal, or uh, I could do a hot dog cart because the product is already cooked. All I have to do is steam it and slice it, which would have been a nightmare. I can tell you now. Uh, or uh, there's the Monarch Tavern. What's the Monarch? Well, it's a upstairs side street second floor dive bar, but they have a professional kitchen that's not being used and I can get it for next to nothing. And Ezra said, if you can get a professional kitchen for next to nothing, grab it. And I literally went from that conversation back to the magic oven, picked up the phone, called Louis Cristello and made an appointment to come down and see him. And that was, uh, you know, Alex, I was one of tens of thousands of people who knew about the Monarch, who knew that that place existed. But I was the only person who made the connection, started something that was so deep into my heart and, and passion for, for, for my life. I mean, the truth, the, the, the real story is that the summer of 2007, I'm going off on a tangent now. Please I hope it's okay. continue. I'm listening. 2007, I was managing the Magic Oven. I had a series of friends uh, and some, some staff members uh, going to Montreal, and I asked them to bring me back. You can finish the sentence if you yeah, want. Yeah, smoke meat, bagels. There you are. Smoke meat sandwich from Schwartz's. And Schwartz's, to me, is the gold standard. Okay, still? Uh, you know what? I haven't been there for many years, but I'll tell you this. I've never had a disappointing experience. Yeah, me neither. And I've heard from other people, oh, they opened the takeout. It's never been the same. Oh, Celine Dion bought it. Shut up. You're right. They've never faltered. Those guys, And not only that, but those guys have given me a huge amount of love. Nice. Um, you know, I've heard from customers that they were in the Schwartz's and say, oh, you know, Toronto doesn't have any good smoked meat. And the staff will say, have you tried Kaplansky's? Like that kind of, for those guys to be promoting me, and that's kind of next generation stuff. Because back in the day, oh, I'm better than that guy. He has no idea. He's serving direct over there at Becker's. No, the guy at Welts has no idea what he's doing. In our generation, the guy, Noah at, at Mile End, I admire him like an idol. I really, I think he's, he's, he's got it down. Um, Wise Sons, amazing. Like, I only want to promote the people that I know. And in fact, later on this afternoon, I've got a phone call with a guy in Seattle who's just getting started and wants some advice. And instead of, you know, I don't want to talk to you because you're my competition, I'll tell him whatever he wants to know. And, and uh, you know, I'm not worried about competition. So... When I had this craving for a Schwartz's smoked meat sandwich and one particular guy uh, or the last in a series of people who disappointed me that summer did not show up with a smoked meat sandwich, I said, uh, you know what? Fuck this. Why can't I just do it myself? Why do I need somebody to go to Schwartz's for me? Why, why, doesn't have, why doesn't Toronto have a decent smoked meat sandwich? And it was like this epiphany. It was like this moment of... This is what I'm meant to do with myself. This is, this is my answer, and it, it really like I get I get goosebumps talking about it, and I tell the story a lot. But it it really was as if I was telling myself a secret that I'd been keeping since I was a little boy, and. Not far from where we're sitting right now was Switzer's, which was the deli that my papa used to take me to. And Bernice, who still works at the Steel's Deli up north, uh, was our waitress. I love Bernice. The fact that you you're mentioning Bernice? Bernice, of course, the makeup, yes, the, hair. the hair. Bernice, it, uh, honestly, my you late... Know she's Jamaican? No way. She's Jamaican. What are the chances? I know, right? <laughs> uh, funny enough, my late grandfather, that was his preferred deli because that's where we grew up. And It I, was one or the other. You were a Switzer's person or a... Sh I, 
we never stepped foot in Shopsies. I never did Center Street either. You know, like I, I understand that that comparison. Some people love it. <laughs> right. The party sandwiches are amazing. But I feel like um, Steele's Deli was built around Bernice. Oh, for sure. She was the personality that really informed that place. And, you know, Leo Beck and uh, was that Leo Beck? Uh, I the school? Have... No, the owner. Uh, High Beck. Sorry. High Beck, not Leo Beck. Leo Beck is the school. That's right. High Beck is the owner of Switzers. Yeah. I was getting those two confused. And, uh, but for me, it was all about Bernice. Oh, yeah. And my papa and I would order uh, corned beef sandwiches, cream sodas, and French fries, but we could never tell Nana about the French fries because she didn't <laughs> want Papa eating French fries. It was our little secret. And, and you know, this is where Delhi attached itself to my DNA. This is where that dream was born. And when I was a little boy, you'd say, what do you want to be when you grow up? As everybody gets asked, I would always say, I want to own a restaurant. And because restaurants are magical places, Alex. Restaurants are places where you go in, you tell somebody what you want, they bring it to you, you enjoy it, <laughs> yeah. and you leave. And, you know, the whole paying part wasn't something that I was really aware of as a small child. So that magic of going in hungry and leaving fulfilled. And Bernice would even have me, you know, run plates around the restaurant. I was her little Come boyfriend. On. She'd pinch my cheeks and, you know, made me feel special. And uh, that's part of what restaurants can do. You know, building relationships with your customers, making people making people feel special. My mentor was Yitz, Yitz Pensioner. And uh, again, David Sachs, I have to thank for that. David said to me, you know, you should give him a call. Yitz had already sold his restaurant to another fellow. So he was essentially retired. And uh, David gave me his number and I called him up. And uh, hello, Mr. Pensioner, it's Zane Kaplansky. I know who you are. I said, I'd like to invite you to come and have lunch at my restaurant. What, what day are you the least busy? And I said, uh, usually Wednesdays are our slowest day. I'll come on Wednesday. And he brought Moish, who was his accountant back in his own business. And I met them in front of the restaurant. I was so honored to have him there. And um, uh, I escorted them up the stairs, those dark, dank stairs, the Monarch Tavern, the stairs to nowhere. And uh, the place was packed. And Getty Lee is standing at the bar because he couldn't find a seat. And I elbow a couple of people out of the way and I, I bring over some chairs and I, I get a, a seat for Yitz. And he looks around. He's like, what? Who? What's going on here? This is a deli? And if you've been to the Monarch, it's a hole in the wall. It's a, it's, a, it's a true dive bar. You know, if the amount of, of uh, bodily fluids that are soaked into that carpet could talk, <laughs> they would tell a really disgusting story. And uh, except for the period that I was there, which was, which was a, a pretty idyllic time. And then a second time, too. Monarch has played a couple roles yes, in your culinary has. career. And then the second time being not as, not as happy as the first. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. I, I, uh, I truly don't appreciate <laughs> I got it. got a couple more questions like that. <laughs> we got to hear both sides, okay. you know. I, I'm a good deflector. <laughs> and uh, and Yitz, actually, the moment he became my mentor was a few months later when I was in the Loblaws on St. Clair, and I had a box of matzah meal in my basket, and I ran into him and Mrs. Yitz, Bernice, and she's, we still, Will and I see her for dinner every couple of months. She's an amazing woman. Yitz always told me that the secret of his, of his success was her. And that she would go and manage the restaurant on the weekends so that he could have some time off. And, you know, he gave me all kinds of advice over time and, and was really the epitome of the deli man. And the fact that I could uh, get Eric, uh, the director of the deli man documentary, to include uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pensioner in the movie. You know, I love what we're doing right now, Alex, because... You know, you're capturing this moment in time and and the deli man documentary does the same thing in technicolor literally um and to see every time i see that film and i see yitz he's alive again and and you know he passed away a few years ago but he lives on in that movie and he lives on in all of our hearts and minds and anybody who's ever you know come into touch with that guy uh will never forget it
Delhi is a family experience. Very rarely uh, do you ever see somebody not bring their entire family. <laughs> I met your dad. You brought your dad Absolutely. into Delhi for and, sure. And it was on Christmas. That's right. Because you're open for the, the Jewish people to have something to eat during right. the time. And my dad, ultimately, anytime it's Christmas time, at nighttime we have Chinese. And during the day, it's Delhi. Perfect. It's just the way it goes. And he, he, he dropped the just about the ultimate name you can drop to me, which is Jeff Singer. Because uh, Jeff Singer is... Because of the uh, name of the sandwich that you have. You know, Jeff, so well, Jeff does the uh, scotch and cigar with your, yeah, with your dad at the scotch club. And, and uh, um, well, funny enough, Jeff has never, I shouldn't even tell this story, but, but uh, uh, he's never sent me a bill. And for all of the years of work that he's done, at the level he does it, because Jeff is a senior partner at Steichman's. And uh, so I'm not getting schlepper advice you know, and work. You know, they've done a lot of work for us. I would not, I, I can, I can absolutely say right here now, Alex, I wouldn't be here in this business. I'd still be alive, but, but, uh, <laughs> would not be an ongoing concern if it hadn't been for Jeff Singer. It's amazing. The family extension is not just, you know, paternal, maternal. It's not just blood. It's, it's a culture mm. that you're preserving that I think people understand that, especially of the Jewish people who, you know, if you're of the Jewish faith, we're brothers, you know, we're all related somehow, you know, it's not a very big population of us if, in the grand scheme of things. So we like to, you know, give respect to those who are helping the community. And I think that's what you're doing in, in a large scale more than I think you realize, because uh, you're preserving something that, essentially doesn't exist you know i mean when i think of classic delis in toronto i can maybe name five on one hand and well probably a few more if we if we if we dig deep but you know the, i've always said the same thing i mean you're, it's very flattering what you're saying uh and delis are different than restaurants because just to support what you've just said alex when somebody's born you call the deli when somebody dies, you call the deli. It's so and true. all the life's events in between, I get to be the guy that serves the food. Wow. And even if I'm not part of the celebration, I'm part of the celebration. You know, and I, I have all kinds of stories that I love to tell. Uh, one of the first ones is, is a friend of mine now named Rich Meloff, whose uh, friend, I was at the Monarch Tavern, I think the fellow's name is Matthew, uh, runs up the stairs, all out of breath. I need two sandwiches. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon. There's nobody there. I'm standing watching television. I need two sandwiches really fast. Okay. And I'm, you know, I move in ultra speed. Yeah, right. Into the, into the kitchen. I start slicing the guy's sandwiches. What's your hurry? He says, my buddy is in the hospital with his wife who's giving birth to their first child. And he wants to hold his newborn in one hand and a deli sandwich in the other. <laughs> just like his father did when he was born. Oh. And Rich has three kids. Rich and Sonia have three kids. And every time a kid is born, to be included in that incredibly special moment when a father holds his son, and it's a multi-generational moment. Every time I tell this story, I get goosebumps and my, my hair stands on end because it's an honor beyond words or description. There's another fellow uh, named Ben who celebrated his, I think it was 90th birthday, and his daughter who threw the party at the family cottage up in Lake Simcoe, he wanted to eat everything that his cardiologist wouldn't let him have for the last 20 years. <laughs> he wanted kishka, he wanted knishes, he wanted chopped liver, he wanted Boston cream pie, he wanted all of the worst and ri richest food that he could possibly you know, abuse himself with. I probably shouldn't put it that way because I want people to come and eat. But, um, you know, everything in moderation. And you had four generations of his family. Him, his daughter, and then her children and grandchildren. And again, to be the guy standing on the sidelines, it wasn't my party. It wasn't about me. But I got to be there and witness it. And I'll never forget it. Because to be the person that gets called to cater the celebration, you're right. That's what sets delis apart. That's what makes us more than just a restaurant. That's what includes us in the events of people's lives in a way that is, is an honor and a privilege and I, I can't be more grateful for. And the stories you've accumulated, I mean, just talking to you for the last 
20 minutes, you're ongoing and it just keeps coming. And I, and I know we're just scratching the surface here. So I just need to get to the root of, you know, where your love of food comes from. You talked about your papa, which is hilarious because my grandfather was also papa. Oh, which neat. Which I find That's to be rare. Right. Very Usually rare. Usually it's boobies and zadies. Right. So I was a mama and papa kid. Yeah, I was Nana and papa. Interesting. Very and interesting. Well, that was because Nana was too uh, young. Okay, young. To be called a, a, uh, a bubby. Right. Bubbies are old ladies. Sure. In the family photos, she refused to sit. Wow. Because the boobies have to sit. She's not a booby. She's going to stand. Love like my, my nana, uh, the Thunder and Thelma. Is named after. Uh, and my other grandmother was Doris. Thelma was a force of nature. And you knew where you stood with her. Uh, and and I, I know how much she loved me. And, and uh, more than anybody I think ever can or will. Maybe with the exception of my, my uh, fiance, of course. And... It was food is what we as Jews and maybe, you know, Europeans, and maybe it's not even related to any nationality. It's what you celebrate with and it's what you commiserate with. When things are going great, let's eat. When things are in the toilet, oh my God, I need to eat something, you know, and, and food becomes part of the story that we tell each other and, and storytelling, as you say, I mean, it's a basic human instinct. All cultures need to tell their stories to entertain, to remember, to reflect, to know who we are. And uh, I love it. We actually had a formal storytelling night in the deli, which used to be a, a weekly event, then it was a monthly event, and we haven't done it now for a number of years. But it was a joy to be able to have a night where people, anybody could stand up and tell a story and to sit there and listen to the stories was, was really a pleasure. And so for me, storytelling, and I should say as well, you know, to be, to be completely uh, transparent or as transparent as I can get, I've had a tremendous amount of success in large part because of my ability to tell stories through uh, radio and television, print as well. And it started with Dragon's Den. It started even before Dragon's Den, but the big thing that I did was Dragon's Den, and then I got invited back, and then I'm back again, and there was two update shows. So I'm the only person who's ever appeared five times on that show who isn't a dragon. And that, I think, brought me to the attention of the Food Network, and they put me on You Gotta Eat Here, and Iron, not Iron Chef, Top Chef Canada, Diners, Drivers, and Dives, Grocery Guys, Grocery Games, uh, Restaurant Takeover, Eat Street, and uh, and then Leslie Merklinger, um, God lover, gave me my big break to be a judge on a show called Donut Showdown, and we did two seasons of Donut Showdown, and then that morphed into Sugar Showdown. Uh, sponsored by the Diabetes Association of, of North America. I'm just kidding. It's it's uh, <laughs> the show's, the show's since, since been canceled. But four seasons of getting paid to eat donuts and so on on TV. I mean, if uh, a better job comes along, take it because uh, you know those opportunities become. It's an opportunity to sell without selling. I'm not saying, you know, come down and try the gefilte fish. I'm not there to say, you know, I have the best smoked meat in town. I'm just saying my name or they're saying my name. And just being a presence, just being, you know, part of the ether, as it were, or, or whatever you want to call it, is uh, part of, I think, what's kept me in people's consciousness. And I tell stories, whether they're food truck stories or landlord lockout stories or franchising stories or, you know, some are happy, some are sad, but but uh, but at the end of the day, they've all led me to where I am, and I can I can tell you without any shadow of a doubt that this is the happiest moment of my life. I've never been in a better place than I am right now. That's amazing to hear, mostly because you're curating a culture, and I think that culture makes food taste better. You know, the story makes people want to get to your restaurant and enjoy your food. But I think there is definitely a disconnect for a lot of restaurants. You know, most tourists or even just locals in Toronto on a lunch break are just going to walk by and see what intrigues them. Right. And there's so many options with Kaplansky's part of the 
excitement around which is just a smoked meat sandwich you know if you, it's just bread and meat in the end of the day is the cultivation of the culture and that you continue to, to develop and the stories you continue to tell and your memory is impressive. The fact that you remember my father and his mention of Singer and, and you know, how much that plays a role into who you are. I think that's part of it, too. You, you must, you know, do you ever like, I mean, maybe you don't, but do people ever sit you down and be like, Zane, you're you know, personality, your storytelling is the reason all this. I mean, I, I like to think that every time my partner tells me something that I may or may not realize, it's hard to kind of take in because it's a job. In the end of the day, you're working hard, but the successes kind of speak for themselves. So it's good to and know how you feel. And, and the failures do too. And, and uh, you need to and, take risks. Well, you know what, Alex, everybody makes mistakes. And you, you know that when you, move out into the deep end further than you're really comfortable to a place where you're really struggling, that's where the magic happens. When you're beyond where you thought, when you're beyond your comfort zone, that's where special things happen. If you stay in the safe place where you know what you're doing and everything is, is as it should be, that could be wonderful. I'm not criticizing you, but I also think that you're not growing and that with growth comes pain and mistakes are part of that and the key is uh, to learn from those mistakes because you're going to keep repeating them over and over until you learn the lesson you need to learn and then you'll grow and get to the next level and so for me no i don't sit around and and listen to people who tell me how wonderful i am and how smart i am and how successful i am i've had a really hard time until recently and will has been a big part of this in being able to enjoy my life and somebody said to me i was filming a tv show not long ago and they said well you get to go home and be zane kaplansky and i thought to myself oh my god that's such a hard thing to be <laughs> and then i thought you know what schmuck enjoy yourself you know, like if you're not having fun along the way with all of the hard work that I put in and all of the challenges and all the difficulties that, that go along with it, what do you do it for? And, um, and so I've really been focusing a lot more these days on being happy Good. and enjoying myself. Good. You deserve it. Well, you know what? People say that to me. Uh, and uh, you're actually the second person today who said it to me. I really don't know, Alex, that I do. But I'll take it. And uh, because you know what? Give, like my father would say, um, between rich or poor, it's good to have money. You're very <laughs> good at giving back. So I think what comes with enjoying your success is being able to branch out, help others, you know, and people want to help people who are helping other people. And that's what you're doing. And you're I've opening doors for others. I've had so many people who've done so much for me. I'm so filled with gratitude, you know, starting with David Sachs, for example. So, I mean, before that, too, but in this in this context and uh, my staff, my investors, my customers, my suppliers, you know, the last year after the lockout. It was really, really hard. And I went through a really challenging time. And I had to go to my suppliers and say, I'm going to pay you, but I just need a little more time. And to a one, they were, well, maybe one or two, but they were, they were incredibly supportive. And what that says, what that does to me, Alex, is it says, you know what? I'm going to take a cue from them. And that when somebody needs me down the road, you know what? Maybe I can, if I can step up, I will, because truly, I believe in karma. I believe that what goes around comes around. It may not be obvious. It may not be instant karma like John Lennon sang about, but it does come back to either bite you in the ass or to lay the groundwork for future success. Because that thing, I actually had uh, a fellow who I gave a job to and then helped through a difficult period of time, came back years later to thank me for what I had done. And when he did that, I was struggling myself. And it reminded, it was, ba it was basically karma in action. And uh, it was, I hadn't thought of it until just now, you know, it's that sort of Hakuna Matata kind of thing where you put it out and then it comes back and, and think of what you're putting out. Think of what you're saying about other people. And, and uh, you know, if you're going to talk shit about people, well, don't be surprised when people talk shit about you too. And, and if you're going to criticize, well, don't be surprised if you get criticized. If you're going to, you know what, 
be constructively critical as opposed to destructively critical, maybe that's what will come back instead. And and, uh, if you're going to help other people, maybe you'll get some help when you need it too. It's my opinion that success is rare without struggle. I think you were talking about growth and growing pains and, you know, it's hard to see what success is without the pain. I think it's a necessity. I think that that, uh, I once had a therapist who said to me that the best definition of happiness that he's ever heard was that happiness is the struggle for a worthwhile goal. And if you break that down, it is struggle. And sometimes struggle is painful. You go down the wrong road. You made a mistake. You married the wrong person. You got the wrong business partner. You bought the wrong thing. But if the goal is worthwhile, not personal aggrandizement, not, you know, fucking somebody over, but it's building something special. It's community. It's, you know, something solid, something worth doing and being that's where I feel right now. I feel, I feel like all of my struggles have been for something really worthwhile and that I'm finally starting to learn from my mistakes, not repeat my mistakes. And and I'm attracting the right kinds of people now into my life. And my life is, my stress level has dropped by quantum levels since a few different people, uh, Willa being at the top of the list, but in the restaurant uh, have joined us because I now have really competent managers and they're really good at what they do. And so I don't have to micromanage. I don't have to look over their shoulder. I can just, you know, be there for advice when they need it and to, to give them guidance guidance and coaching when they need it, but not to, I can focus on the stuff that I do well, telling stories, you know, tasting the food, making sure that it's on point, being there for my customers. I had a fellow who just said to me a few few moments ago, he was at our Yorkville location and uh, was sitting on the patio. And he said to me, the numbers of people who he heard that's the guy from Dragon's Den. That's the guy from whatever the show they saw me on. I wonder if he's there. And they would go up the stairs and look in the restaurant to see if I was there. And, you know, it's a hugely flattering thing to think that that you've been able to create a kind of a following. I mean, I'd prefer they go inside and buy a sandwich. Uh, but, and one day they will. You know, when the, when the time is right, uh, they'll become, become customers. Because the bottom, what I'm trying to say is, it's not all about me. It's my name on the door. And I certainly created the product, but I learned from Danny Meyer, who is one of the world's best restaurateurs, Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke, Shake Shack, uh, 11 Madison, to name a few. Uh, I read his book, Setting the Table, after I was been in business for about three years, two or three years, and was really struggling hard. And he says, your staff your guests, this is how ingrained it is, your staff, your guests, your community, your suppliers, or suppliers and community, and then your investors are the five most important groups in your your restaurant. I always thought guests come first, the customer's king. Danny Meyer convinced me that you don't make every dish anymore. You don't serve every dish anymore. Your staff does. And if your staff hates you, guess what's gonna happen when your customer complains? Meh. If your staff loves you and they love the brand and they love what they do and you treat them really well, they will treat your customers as well as you would have yourself. And that culture shift was really hard for me because I'm a bit of a control freak. It's my mother's chopped liver recipe. And if it doesn't taste, she came in, my cousin had his, his son's bar mitzvah in the restaurant and my mother had a scoop of the chopped liver. And then she very subtle, gave me a little nod of the head, a little nudge and just you know, you nailed it. But if it's not right, it's personal. It's my mother's chopped liver. What the fuck are you putting, you know, black pepper in my mother's chopped liver? And, 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 but it's not the crime of the century. You teach the person properly, you talk to them properly. And that's why, you know, sometimes if I'm too close to my brand, which I am, because it's my name, I need somebody in between my manager and, uh, and right now I've got a terrific guy who, uh, he's new to Delhi, but he's not new to restaurants or customer service or dealing with staff. And so he's really, you want to hear a great story on his second or third day on the job, he saved a man's life. 
How? So a fellow had a seizure sitting on the patio and he stopped breathing. And Jonathan, his name is Jonathan Ho, jumped in and all of his CPR training came. He'd never had to have to use it before. Saved the man's life and it kept him alive until the ambulance came. And now he's fine. I I waited a few days and called uh, the gentleman's wife and she said he saved his life. And, uh, you know... Not much a person can do in this world. I can make a great sandwich. Jonathan Ho saved a man's life. And, and uh, you know, that's uh, for the staff. That's the ultimate leadership by example. When the pressure is on, when it's a life and death situation, Alex, dude was there. And just like you can't have success without struggle, you can't have success without support. No question. And, and it's, it's, it's never one man show. And that's the, that's the thing, you know, and what is my skill set when I'm at the Monarch Tavern, you know, it's me and Jessica Rohr and, uh, Megan was Megan's last name, Megan McGill. Oh, it's going to kill me now. Uh, she's in Vancouver, but the three of us started the restaurant and Jessica was a server at the magic oven where I was working at the time. And she said, I'm going to start to come and start this with you. And she, she, um, grabbed dishes from her mother, which her mother had bought at value village which was the original dishes that we used. And she said, it's like, we're playing restaurant. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was like a bunch of kids who were just doing stuff. And, uh, you know, you go from this, pop-up freak show second floor side street dive bar play to okay well then well we just spent you know half a million dollars renovating a restaurant i took investment from a bunch of machers and and uh, people who who wanted to support me it's on and i have to up my game and so for me i was literally overwhelmed and overmatched for the first few years that I, I was trying to run the deli on college street because I simply wasn't capable of it. I didn't have the skill set, and, uh, I am guilty of taking that out on other people. And, and, you know, when you see those chefs who yell and scream, typically it's because they're like me. They, they didn't train their people properly. They didn't select the right people to have around themselves. And they're suffering the consequences because when the guests show up, they're, you know, underprepared and, and, uh, and in the weeds, as we say. You know, luckily, the one thing I have going for me is um, persistence. Persistence is the hallmark of my character. Uh, if you ever saw the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can... Of course. Leonardo DiCaprio, where Christopher Walken tells him the story about the two mice who get cat, who get stuck in a milk jug. I'm the one that, that walks out on the, on the um, churned butter because I won't give up. I would never quit. And quit is not part of my lexicon of understanding. Plus, it would be so fucking humiliating to fail after all the attention and all the advantages that I've been given in that business because of all the media exposure and because of all the people who've gotten behind me and pushed. And I kind of felt a responsibility for them to never give up. And and last year was uh, the darkest of the dark days. I had the beginning of December, I had my, my uh, general manager quit at the worst possible time going into Christmas and realizing how bleak our situation was. I took back control. And even though I knew I was the last person who should be the general manager of that restaurant, I re-engaged as the general manager of that restaurant and uh, not single-handedly, but I, I saved the business and to the point where uh, everything's fine now and we're back on track and everything's growing and going the way it should be going. Uh, but Walter Kung really did a number on, on us and, and, uh, that's my landlord, uh, and, uh, very unfairly. Um, but you know, sometimes good things happen to bad people, right? Let's touch on that issue. Uh, again, the struggle is real. <laughs> as, as they say. At midnight, you get a phone call from your alarm company that somebody's, the, the alarms are going off in the restaurant. And I look at my phone and I see somebody working on the doors. Uh, I thought it was a repair person, but I thought it was suspicious that he'd be there at midnight. Right. And I went in to find uh, the alarms going off. Uh, a bailiff 
and a bailiff's notice on the door and a locksmith changing the locks. And the landlord collected the rent on the morning of June 6th. And then he locked me out at midnight on June 6th. And uh, with a, the note that said, failure to effect repairs not uh, approved by the landlord or authorized by the landlord. Failure to do something that I wasn't allowed to do. I don't even still to this day know what that means. And I can only conjecture about why he did what he did. Um, my, my assumption is greed. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, I think he wanted to break the lease so that he could sell the building for redevelopment. We all know what the value of housing is like in the city of Toronto, real estate, and that he could make a lot more money to sell the building for redevelopment. And um, again, this is just you know my own assumption and what other people who are real estate people have suggested That's to me. That's a good assumption. Well, you know, and and but but the damage. What what he should have done. What a mensch does, Alex, is say, sit down. You know, I can sell this this building for a lot more money if I can. Uh, get you off the lease and um, this is what I'm prepared to do to, to make it happen and I would say well you know either no I'm not prepared to do that at all or yeah I'll do it but for this amount of money and then you agree on a timeline and an amount and you do it in a way that that doesn't see you and your staff I mean 45 people and their livelihoods that's not cool no. And, and uh, my investors, my suppliers, my customers, you know, it was a really outrageous thing that he did. And uh, yeah, luckily, the justice system in my case worked. I got a great lawyer. Uh, Jeff Singer had, had referred me to a guy named uh, Neil Abramson. And, um, and I got a great judge, um, Fred Myers, Justice Fred Myers. And Justice Myers was was very successful in mediating the dispute, and uh, it did a masterful job of it. I was really surprised that he got us to agree uh, on a on a resolution, and. Um, you know, since then, he's maintained an interest in the case. And I won't say that my relationship with Mr. Kung is harmonious. Well, it is because Justice Meyer said it is. And uh, when there's a problem, you can talk to, to the judge. And if whatever he says goes. And so far, all is well. Can we talk about the resolution? No. It's part of our part of the resolution sure. is that it's confidential. I mean, you would still deal with your landlord at least on a monthly basis. Well, he cashes a check every month, right? Yeah. You know, so did you ever have a personal relationship? You know, you know the the relationship seemed to sour uh, when we did the first renewal. So the the deal that I signed was five, 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 and five which means it's a 20-year lease with three renewals. So the first term was five years, and then the second renewal is based on uh, mutual agreement, market rent. So this is what I think the market is in the area. This is what you think the market is in the area. And if we don't agree, then we go to arbitration. And he and I, I, I hired uh, a guy named Phil Pick, who's a specialist in the Kensington market area, to do a survey and tell me what the, the number is, that what's fair market rent. And Phil gave me a number and I gave it to Walter and Walter told me to go fuck myself. I mean, maybe he didn't, well, he probably did use those terms exactly, but it doesn't matter. Um, in any case, he rejected the offer. And we couldn't, his number was off the charts, not realistic and maybe even not unusual. Sometimes landlords see a successful tenant and they think that they can dig you for more. And uh, we lawyered up and I hired a lawyer and he hired a lawyer and we went to the arbitration process. And the night before the arbitration process was to begin, uh, I got a call from Walter's lawyer that he was prepared to accept my offer. And I think the relationship changed at that point. I think that there was a certain perhaps loss of face that, uh, that he suffered and that as the landlord, which is up here and as a tenant, which is down here to get one over on the landlord in his perspective, you know, from my perspective, I have paid my rent on time every month for, you know, Nine years. Well, nine. What more can you do? What more can you do? I can, I can do more. I have kept the building in tip-top shape. I have cleaned up. It was, it was a vacant uh, building for a year and a half before I moved in. I've improved the value of the building. 
So I have in my lease the first right of refusal to buy the building. When I signed the lease, Arthur Mew, who was Walter's real estate uh, guy, agent, told me that the building was worth $1.7 million. The second year when Arthur and I were talking uh, and I asked him what the building's worth, he said 2.1. I said, what happened to 1.7? He said, well, that was before we had a successful main floor tenant. So I've improved the value of the, what, what else can I do? And obviously, you know, what I could do is move along. Uh, but I wasn't prepared to do that without a fight. Again, coming back to my persistence and my, my uh, friendship with Jeffrey Singer. And, uh, you know, Neil Abramson is that son of a bitch you don't ever want to face in a courtroom. And uh, unless he's on your side. Right. And uh, this was survival. And, you know, what I didn't appreciate at the time was that what he essentially did was ruined all of the work and all the momentum that I had put into the franchising of the business because... Uh, earlier in 2016, I had uh, opened the Yorkville location on May 6th. Um, within a week or two, Beyonce placed a huge order with us, and that the news of that went viral. A week later, Anthony Bourdain ate in our airport location as well. And the week after that, I get locked out by the landlord. And all the marketing that I had, had set up for for September, October, November to go to franchise trade shows and to, to try and sell franchises, I didn't sell any franchises last year. I got a lot of, so what happened with your landlord? Because if uh -huh. you're going to invest your life savings uh, into a guy who got locked out, and when people get locked out, the first thing you assume is, I didn't pay my rent. Correct. And that's not what happened. But people read headlines. They don't, they don't know the depth of the story. And all they know is, I got locked out, and maybe it was because of my, uh, not paying rent. It's not what happened at all. Uh, but because we had invested so heavily in this franchising momentum that got cut off the knees, uh, it, it really, I really suffered a lot. So do you have an idea, did it ever come across your mind to sue for damages? I have another year left uh, to sue if I want to do that. And uh, let me just say, I'll, I'll leave my options open. Uh, Zane, it, it sucks when good things happen, or sorry, when bad things happen to good people, um, or good things happen to bad people. <laughs> I need to know, you know, now, you know, you're talking about franchise not being sold, but you do let have... Me, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me interrupt you and say, sometimes what seems like a bad thing isn't so bad at all. You want to elaborate? Well, just perspective is everything. Sometimes, you know, if... That hadn't happened, and I had continued to work with the people that I had around me who've all left and been replaced by much better managers and people on the staff. I, I feel a sense of renewal. It's like Shiva is the destroyer, but also the creator. Uh, for something to be created, something else has to, has to die. It's again that cycle of life idea. So it seems like a tragedy. Maybe in the fullness of time, you realize that that's actually what was intended to happen and that you, I wouldn't be as happy right now if I hadn't suffered as much as I did last year because I needed to suffer. And it's unfortunate, but the best thing that can come out of a situation like that is to see the amount of support you actually have. That's exactly. Yeah. Oh, from that perspective, I have never felt more loved by this city, you know, I, so at midnight, I took a picture of the bailiff's notice on the, on the window, and I knew that people would be showing up for lunch the next day at 11 o'clock, and if I didn't post it, somebody else would. And I had to, my, my political training told me that I had to get out in front of the story. And so I posted on Instagram the bailiff's notice and saying, sorry, folks, we're closed. And I got a call from the Toronto Star within seconds. Wow. And uh, within half an hour, they asked me to be in front of my restaurant and every television camera, every radio station and every newspaper in the city was there that day to tell the story. And they, you know, Mark Twain has the, has the, uh, the quote, bad news travels around the world before good news gets its pants on. So the story of the closing was incredibly well covered. When we got let back into the building on Friday, there was one the Toronto Star was the only people who 
told the story of of the good news part of the story. And there's a lot of people, I'm sure, who still don't know that we that were reopened. They heard about the. Unfortunately, Gordy Howe died the same day that that the restaurant reopened. So that you know, uh, Mr. Hockey. Was the, was the news of the day. And I get that. But what it meant was that we've had to you know, work harder and, and build slowly and be able to get back to um, where we had been. We talk about support in various ways. We've talked about your fiance, your new fiance, Willa, who I've met before. She's wonderful. And, and I think every Zane needs a Willa. Yeah, it's true. I tell, you know, and, and Yitz, as I say, told me that his success was, was Mrs. Yitz. And uh, I, I don't think I would have survived the last... You know, the, the darkness of the last year and even longer uh, if it hadn't have been for her. Uh, she really has supported me and loved me. And, you know, it, I'm 49 years old. I met her when I was 46. Uh, I'm a late bloomer. This whole deli thing didn't start till I was 40. I do a lot of speaking to public schools, high schools, colleges, and universities because a lot of young people are under pressure to know what they're supposed to do with the rest of their lives when... Sometimes you don't know until like I was 40 years old. And it's, it's, I think, a relief for those people to hear the stories of, of somebody who sort of made it happen for himself or herself later in life. And um, same with meeting somebody. You know, Willa is, she calls herself my third wife because I was married once before, briefly. Uh, again, it was a disastrous mistake that is also covered by by a, a non-disclosure. Uh, well, I guess we're, we're not supposed to speak ill of each other and I won't speak ill of her. Uh, my second wife was the deli and I had a lot of girlfriends over the years that I, I had the deli. I still have it, obviously, but the deli always came first. And Willa was the very first person who made me put the deli second and realize that what's really important in life is family. I met Willa, we, we were talking before, because mm -hmm. you met my Willa, Trish, out there, mm -hmm. who I wasn't seeing at the time, but Jesse Valens, who's now of Maple Leaf Tavern, had was the executive chef uh, at the Seine. He had his, you know, sausage party, as it will, mm -hmm. and, and we got to hang out, which was nice, and I got to meet Willa. And, and it's definitely that yin to the yang, especially because you have a lot of stress you were talking about, and it takes someone like Willa to relieve the stress and help you enjoy the fruits of your labor. Yeah. It's true. It's absolutely true. And, and uh, we are so incredibly complimentary of each other and to each other. I tell her how hot she is. She tells me how hot I am. Kidding. Uh, yeah, the, You're you sweaty. Know. You're sweaty. <laughs> the, you know, we, we each have a very different skill set depending on what we're doing. So, you know, I make the protein. She makes the salad. I have the vision. She makes it happen. With a smile on her face. She always. Always. She is the, the most pleasant, most delightful. The only time she's ever... I've ever seen another side of her was uh, I got my Nexus card before she did. And I sailed through at the airport and it was having lunch or breakfast at Lynn Crawford's uh, Hearth restaurant in Terminal 1. Uh, we were texting the whole time. I ordered her breakfast so that arrived when she got there. But I'm finished my breakfast. I'm happy as a clam. And she's just been through, you know, the hell that, that you go through when you have to stand in those long lines. And uh, just no talking. Just for, for the moment, just please. No, I, like, her angry <laughs> is most people's pleasant. I mean, she, she's just the most lovely person that, that you can know. And uh, to be marrying into her family as well. And she's from Tofino, British Columbia. And that's where we're having the wedding. And, um, you know, I couldn't be more excited and pleased and proud to be bringing our two families together. Very different people, very different backgrounds. But at our core, the message and the, the, the love is the same. Well, congratulations to Thanks. you. Thanks. I have had you for an hour. Can I have you for longer? How much longer can I, I have? Actually, I, I, my phone has been buzzing, so so uh, maybe we can do a part two another time. Yeah, I would love to. Can we do that? Absolutely. Cool. It's been my absolute pleasure having you, Alex, Zane. This has been my pleasure as well. I, I actually, this may be the favorite interview I've, I've ever oh, given. Oh, come on. 
Truly, truly, I, 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 I'm not trying to flatter you. I, I didn't really... answer any of my, ask any of my <laughs> questions. I didn't. I have, I literally, we, I barely asked you uh, my first question here. Where does your love of food come from? Where, where, where your, pa- yeah, where your pa- parents, great cooks, grand, you know, I would love to nail down the questions I actually have for you in another interview, but I'm flattered. Really. Well, uh, you know what? This has been a, this has been great for me too. I've enjoyed every moment. Uh, let's find time to do it again. Please. Can you plug your socials, your restaurant location? Sure. What's new? You're selling socks now. We didn't even get to talk about this, <laughs> the new stuff you're selling. So I have a radio show every Saturday on News Talk 1010 called Let's Eat uh, with me, Zane Kaplansky. I have uh, the College Street Restaurant, 356 College. I've got the Yorkville Spot, 156 Cumberland. The food truck is always available for parties. I've got the Terminal 3 location in the airport. We actually closed Terminal 1 uh, earlier, earlier this year. It's a kiosk that um, they've changed the way the U.S. Customs clearance goes. It happens over here. And so the, the space just was not available any longer, which is fine. These things happen. But, um, uh, and, you know, like I said, the most important thing is that I'm getting married in August. And, and, uh, uh, I will tell you, uh, as maybe a bit of a teaser, that you will see me in a new Food Network series coming up in this in the fall. Uh, I'm under uh, another non-disclosure, not to give too much away, but um, this is one of those very special moments where the show is shot, it's in the can. I have a feeling of what what's going to happen in my life once it airs, uh, but nobody else knows. All right, it's kind of it's kind of a really fun time. Super exciting! Yeah. Well, muzzles. Thank you to Zane Kaplansky Thanks, for coming on to episode one of season two of Speaking Duck here on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Thank you to my guest Zane Kaplansky. Pleasure. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 